Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another? just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. The word dream or dreamings or dreams is used almost more than any other in popular music. Here's just a a little trip back about 60 years. Beginning this year, Anne Hathaway, as the character of Fantine in Les Miserables, if you've seen the movie, did a pretty amazing job singing the song, I Dreamed a Dream. Playing this character who had absolute hopelessness in her life, but, but was hoping, at least for her child, I Dreamed a Dream. Of course, eight years ago, back in 2005, Green Day sang about the boulevard of broken dreams with their usual positive spin on things. Ten years before that, 1993, Billy Joel sang of the river of dreams where he claimed that pretty much all rivers lead to the same ocean. And then, of course, in 1983, the Eurythmics sang sweet dreams are made of this. And I still have no idea what sweet dreams are made of based on that song. I read the lyrics again this week and I went, they don't ever tell you. (laughs) Then, ten years before that, Aerosmith sang Dream On. Those of you who know the Aerosmith song, I looked up those lyrics. I had no idea what they were singing in the chorus. You know what they sing? Sing with me. Sing for the year. That's year. (laughs) Sing for the laughter. Sing for the tears. I always thought it was sing for Mattia. And I'm like, who's Mattia? (laughs) Sing with me just for today. Maybe tomorrow the good Lord will take you away. Now, I think they mean it negatively. I read that and went, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe tomorrow the good Lord. So I'm singing Dream On. I'm walking around the house. Dream on. Dream on. You know. My wife's like, Rick's in the 70s again. <laughs> 1966. As many of you are today, the mamas and papas were California dreaming. 1958. The Everly Brothers, I think they have the all-time best song about dreams. In fact, the most clever lyric I've ever heard, dream, 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 dream. Dream. Breaking some new ground there, Mozart. <laughs> Of course, who can forget? Way back in 1950, when Cinderella sang, A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. In dreams, you lose your heartaches. 
Whatever you wish for, you keep. Have faith in your dreams and someday your rainbow will come smiling through. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. That's stupid. (laughs) It's just pure bunk. The truth is, hope without faith in Jesus and the love of God is nothing more than the stuff of dreams and wishful thinking. And you can't dream your way into a reality. You can't wishfully think your way into making something happen. Oh, I know there are people who have been successful who who had a dream. I know Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. I believe a dream given by the Lord. But I know there are those who say, I'm dreaming of this and I'm going to make it happen. And here's the thing, no matter how successful anybody is in life, no matter how far their dreams may take them in this life, they're still going to die and they have to face eternity. We still have the big picture in front of us. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. This is what's required for your dream to truly come true. Romans 5, 5 says, Hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, I can dream in Jesus. I can hope in the Lord and I will not be disappointed. So I ask you this morning, as we begin to think about some things here in Jeremiah 23, do your hopes and do your dreams seem broken or elusive? Maybe plans you made years ago that never really came about. Or things that you're into right now that that are starting to go off course. I want to talk about something this morning that is not a dream. Something that is absolutely real and effective and potent to change your life. To direct your life, to direct the very course of your life and mine. And it doesn't matter where you're on in the course of your life. Something that is so powerful that if we will engage in it, will take us where we need to go. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12, Moses said, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? No, he says, The word, the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. The world may dream, but my friends, you have the word of God. And there's a vast difference between the nefarious dreams of the world, the elusive dreams of mankind, and the Word. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You want success in your life? Go to the Word. There were dreamers in Jeremiah's day. They imagined all the people living life in peace. But they were about to wake up to a nightmare. The dreamers were the false prophets. They propped up their phony revelations with empty dreams. And verse 28 of the passage before us says, The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream. But let him who has my word speak my word in truth. The contrast, and I never really contrasted the Word of God with the dreams of man, but the contrast is stunning. It's revealing. 
wishful thinking or the Word of God? Tickled ears or the truth? And they are very different things. Let's look at this this morning. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream! I had a dream! How long? When God says how long and and expresses that kind of exasperation, I, I tend to back up a bit. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their heart? who intend to make My people forget My name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot My name because of Baal. You're out there dreaming. You're expressing your dreams and you're using your dreams to draw the people away. Now, as I read this, it becomes clear that there were some prophets who were sincere. False, but sincere. They really believed that what they were receiving was from God. They really thought that this was true. These dreams that they were having that they related, oh, must be right. And, of course, there were the insincere false prophets. Both were out there. And according to this passage, some were deceived by their own hearts, by their own longings. Remember we talked about a few weeks back, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceptive than all else. You cannot trust even your own heart to lead you in the right direction. I mean, it just felt like the right thing to do. Well, your heart is deceptive. And so there were dreamers, there were false prophets, they were false, but they didn't know they were false. They were deceived by their own hearts, deceived by their own dreams. Of course, there were other false prophets who intentionally sought to undermine the word of truth. They were looking for a way to undermine Jeremiah. But either way, Jeremiah himself, as the prophet of the Lord, was surrounded by empty-hearted dreamers. And I think one of the things I like about Jeremiah the most was how he just stuck to it. This is the prophet with grit. The prophet with resolve. The prophet who was determined. He sticks to the, to the Lord. He trusts in His Word even when no one around him was doing it. The whole of all the prophets of Judah are opposed. And he alone stood for the truth of the Word of God. And gang, in this world, we must take His lead. Even if the whole world should turn away from God's Word, from God's truth, we must not be among those who turn. Stand on the truth. We've been told this verse, we've read it many times, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of many, and then he lists 15 more things. And down in verse 4 of 2 Timothy 3, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. One commentator I read several years ago said you can take those three issues and, and wrap up the entire problem that Paul's talking about. The entire list, that list of 15, 16 different things in 2 Timothy 3 is all wrapped up in three issues. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. And the rest of it all falls in there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says they're holding to a form of godliness, which means they're religious. Which means religious, well-intended people holding to a form of God. It looks like church. It looks godly. And they're hanging on to that, although they have denied its power. And Paul says to Timothy, avoid such men as these. 
Those are strong words. And you all know this. Both inside and outside of the church, false prophets come and go. Every generation sees them. The dreamers offer up their empty dreams. They always have. And ultimately, these empty dreams don't last. Ultimately, the new buzz gets old and falls off. Ultimately, the latest thing is found to be, well, the same as the last latest thing. And we see it both in Christianity and outside. Empty things always end up seen for what they are empty. And so the Lord says, the prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Now I want to pause just for a moment. This issue of dreams is interesting. There is, there is an impact in our faith and among Christians. And I've been asked this question before. Are dreams a legitimate form of divine communication or revelation? And that might freak some people out. What? We're supposed to listen to our dreams? Are they legitimate? Well, doesn't the Bible say that in the last days, the old men will dream dreams? Peter quotes from Joel 2.28 in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, saying, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And I'm still having visions. I don't know about some of you other guys. <laughs> Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And you'll note, even when the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah, He says they dream their false dreams. Which indicates that there are legitimate dreams. Is it a legitimate form of divine communication? What does the Bible really teach about dreams and dreaming? Well, let's consider this, and this is by no means exhaustive. Just a few little thoughts to maybe get you stirring and, and perhaps send you back to study this through yourselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3. I'm going to read this to you in the King James Version. It's probably the best in terms of accuracy on this verse. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business... And a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Dream comes through much busyness. The indication that Solomon is talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes is that most of our dreams are the overflow of overactive minds. You know that we, we go to sleep, and especially in times of high stress or high busyness or things that are going on uh, rapidly in our lives, our minds keep spinning far after our bodies have gone to sleep. And they start to churn out strange scenarios that make sense in the dream world, but when we wake up we go, what was that? Strange, weird stuff. And it's just our minds kind of, it's almost like our minds uh, offloading the excess, you know, so that we can function normally during the day. These strange scenarios often have no inhibition or control in our dreams. And it's because... Because again, the mind is just offloading, getting rid of stuff. But the Lord has, and I believe does, use dreams from time to time for His purposes. And you might ask, well, why does God come to people in dreams? Or why does God speak sometimes in dreams? And I think maybe it's because the only time, it's the only time we're still in quiet. It's the only time we shut up long enough for Him to say something. Psalm 
4, verse 4 says, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And so perhaps sometimes the Lord speaks in a dream because that's the best time to get somebody's attention. And there are several examples of God utilizing dreams in the Bible. Here's a short list. Historical dreams. Historical dreams. Joseph was a dreamer. You can read the story in Genesis 37. He dreamed literally of... He got a picture of the history that was about to take place in his family's life. The life of his father, Jacob, Israel. So Joseph had historical dreams. There were also prophetical dreams. Daniel was a dreamer. A dreamer of dreams. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And we're just two books away, by the way, from the book of Daniel. The prophet dreamer. Some of the dreams he had were absolutely amazing in their legitimacy historically as a prophet. He dreamed these things. There are, uh, number three, inspirational dreams. Inspirational dreams. That is, dreams of encouragement. This is one of my favorite examples. You know, Gideon... Gideon had a band of men. He was going to go up and fight against the Midianites. And he started with some 30,000 plus men and God whittled the group down to 300. So Gideon is there in his camp. He has 300 men and he's facing a camp of 135,000 Midianites. And God is telling Gideon, take your army of 300 and go fight 135,000 and I'll take care of it. How would you feel? If you were Gideon, if I was Gideon, I'd be like, you know, Lord, I mean, i got faith, but come on. Really? So God says, look, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go take your servant, if you're too scared to do this by yourself, and sneak down to the Midianite camp at night. So Gideon sneaks down there. Listen to this, Judges chapter 7, verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating his dream to his friend. Gideon overhears this. The Midianite says, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. One Midianite says to the other, and his friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hands. Gideon hears the two Midianites talk about this dream and he is inspired. Because God gives the dream to the enemy that Gideon himself might know that God is on his side. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. Which tells you, even if you have barley 300 men, you can... (laughs) can beat the enemy. (laughs) Historical dreams, prophetical dreams, inspirational dreams, revelational dreams. As the Lord, well, came to Joseph in a dream. I think that's interesting. Mary saw the angel Gabriel in person. Mary did not have a dream. Joseph, however, had a dream. Why? Why did God do it that way? Why didn't Gabriel show up to both of them together? Or why didn't, if Gabriel showed up to Mary in person, why didn't he show up to Joseph in person? Instead, Joseph had a dream. Why? Because the dream, listen, the dream confirmed the reality. 
And sometimes that's exactly what God will do in a dream. He gives you the reality. He gives you the truth by His Word and then confirms it with a dream. The substance is not in the dream. The substance is in the Word. The substance is in the truth. But He will confirm oftentimes through dreams or through visions what He has already told us He wants us to do. So the dream is confirmational, this revelational dream. There are also dreams of warning. Where the Lord uses a dream to bring someone onto high alert. After Jesus' birth, the Magi received a warning in a dream. Matthew 2, verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And we're also told that when they had gone, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Dreams of warning. So there are many different examples in Scripture of different ways God used dreams to inform His people, or inspire His people, or reveal to His people, or even prophesy what is to come. In the book of Job, the enigmatic young man Elihu, Elihu reveals yet another purpose for dreams. Listen to this, Job 33, verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night... When sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Did you get that? Seals their instruction. That is, they've already been instructed. The dream seals it, confirms it, supports it. That he may turn aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. And that's huge. Dreams are only truly spiritual, only truly divine, if they open our ears humbly to the instruction of the Lord. If they send us off in some weird place, especially that is magnifying to our own humanity, it's not a dream from God. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 7 says, In many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Let that be the source of your instruction. Dreams and visions are legitimate methods of godly communication. But the problem with the pseudo-prophets is they didn't fear and they didn't respect the Lord. Had their fear of the Lord been true, like Jeremiah's, had they truly respected and worshipped and honored God as their Lord, then they would have known the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of some of their dreams. Well, God calls out a couple of specific problems with these deluded dreamers. Verse 30 says, Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Two problems here. The first problem, they steal their words. They steal my words, he says. Bogus declarations. Bogus declarations. They use religious lingo to bolster otherwise ungodly sayings. I hear this all the time these days. Thus saith the Lord does not mean the Lord saith it. (laughs) You got to check it out. Uh, Saying, I have a word from the Lord for you. If someone comes up to you and says that, you say, thank you, I will pray about that and test it against his word. I have a word from the Lord. Well, that doesn't validate that the word truly is just because someone says that. They steal my words implies prophetic plagiarism. Using a select word here or there or something that sounds religious to bear up or support what your agenda might be. False teachers do it all the time. They take snippets of Scripture. 
a sample here, a bit, a piece there, fragments of the truth to make their lies and their heresies sound legitimate. You've got to be careful with this stuff. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. The Lord said, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Do we follow that today? (laughs) Not at the bridge. There's maybe some other church that will kill the false prophets. I read that and I thought, wow, that is so serious. God was so serious. So intolerant of those who would use His words and rip them off for their own agenda. Prophetic plagiarism. He has a policy of zero tolerance for those who use His name or His word for their own agenda. Why is He so stern about that? Listen, it's because the Lord isn't into mixed messages. We confuse stuff all the time. God's message is true and it is clear and it is open and it is revealed. It's not some hidden thing. Isaiah 45, verse 19. He said, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. That is, seek me in vanity. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. You can count on what I say, he says. And I speak it to you clearly. And I'm not playing games with you. That one thought has has really helped me through the years of walking in faith. God doesn't play games. He's not messing with me. He's not waiting to see if I'm going to mess up. You know, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something and see if you blow it. He just doesn't. God doesn't do that. He is as forthright as anyone can possibly be. He is absolutely perfect in his presentation. He's not into mixed messages. Jesus said in John 18.20, I have spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple. You ever wonder why He did that? Where all the Jews come together, I spoke nothing in secret. He didn't just hide out, train up, and then hit the scene. He was out in the open, speaking to everyone. Anyone could hear everything Jesus had to say. That's the way God works. The false prophets, however, will use bogus declarations. Bogus declarations, religious lingo, a scripture here, a scripture there, to try and bolster what they're presenting. You know, one of the reasons why we are teaching through the Bible verse by verse is so we can see everything in the context that God gave it. As opposed to this morning, Pastor Rick is going to teach from half of this verse. So you get a half of God's words and then you get, you know, 20 minutes of opinion instead of the Word of God in context. Well, there were bogus declarations. There were also baseless confirmations. Baseless confirmations. Look down at verse 32. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting, yet I did not send... Or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. So here come the false prophets, and they're saying, you got to hear what I have to say. Why should we listen to you? I had a dream. I had a supernatural experience. And now I'm going to relate it to you. 
And immediately the false prophet set himself on a level above the people. I've had this ecstatic experience you haven't had. You've got to listen to what I have to say. I've been dreaming. I've had a vision. How do you argue with that? God told me this. Oh, well, if God told you. The Lord spoke to me in a dream. Well, if the, I guess we can't debate that one, right? There's no grounds on which to debate it. In Jude chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 8, Jude wrote, These men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Okay, so what if someone comes along and they say, I had this dream. I know it's of the Lord. And he said, he said the Bridge Fellowship is going to be in the barn nine and a half years. What if it comes true? What if he was right? Oh wow! Well, he was Nostradamus was kind of right about some things if you twist it. You know, have you heard the the Nostradamus prophecy by the way about nine eleven? Anyone heard about that? When 9-11 happened, a lot of people got real excited because, oh, Nostradamus said two brothers are going to fall in this great city, you know, in the city of God. Well, New York City, city of God, that, that's a problem right there. But he, these two brothers are going to fall. And everybody went, wow, that's amazing. It's a prophecy of Nostradamus from 1674. He died in the 1500s. <laughs> anyway. Baseless confirmations. But what if a false prophet says something that comes true? So what do, you, what do you do with that? Go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13. Keep your finger in Jeremiah. Look back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. Lord speaking through Moses to the people, laying out the law, but also giving them divine direction unlike they had ever had. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, note that, it comes true concerning the thing which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. You see, the Lord sees it before it all hits. The Lord says to His people Israel, you know what? False prophets are going to arise and they're going to do some impressive things. But if they are doing these impressive things and they are leading you away from me, you don't listen to them. Even if the stuff they say comes true, even if there is power in what they're doing, even if they present supernatural evidence, if it's not of me, you don't follow them. If it conflicts with what I've given you, with who I am, if it conflicts with my word, don't go after them. He calls it all out before it happens. There will be deceivers. There will even be those who conjure up impressive signs. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and, listen, will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 
Gang, we need to recognize, you go back to Jeremiah, there are devilish powers in the world. There are demonic forces at work in the world today. Churches that teach that it's all just a vague force are deluding themselves and are the most open to be deceived. We have to recognize there are deceptive power forces out there with supernatural abilities to deceive us. How do we test what we hear? How do we know? We test it against the whole Word of God. The whole Word. Don't buy into religious lingo or holy jargon. Oh, but he sounds so religious. He sounds so... It's the way... I just love listening to him talk. I've heard people say that. Well, have you heard the guy preach? I don't have to. If he's not preaching God's Word, it's not God's Word. I don't care how he sounds. Don't buy it just because it bears signs or wonders. Yeah, but he did this miracle. So? The demons are capable of doing miracles... That's not what we base it on. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole thing. There's only one way that I know of to be sure if dreams or visions are truly from the Lord, and that is you go back to the Word. You just keep going back to the Word. Well, we've heard that before, Rick. Well, and I'm going to say it again. You go back to the Word. Because what we find... As we study through the Word of God, as we hitch our wagon to the Gospel and to the truth of God's Word, we find amazing consistency. You don't study, from, as we've done, from Genesis through Jeremiah and all of a sudden find something new that is different than what was in earlier Scripture. You'll find that in the Koran. You study from the beginning to the end and you start to find that what he says toward the end is different than what he said at the beginning. You don't find that in the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it is absolutely consistent. God's Word is faithful and true. There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. In fact, I heard the other day, and I think it's a great idea, but to go to the end of the Old Testament and take the page that says New Testament and rip it out of your Bible... And then go to the very beginning of the Old Testament and take the page that says Old Testament and rip that out of your Bible. Why? Because it's one Word of God. It is one consistent, faithful, legitimate, perfect, holy, righteous Word of God from cover to cover. We have all we need to help us live life and godliness. We have what we need here in the Word to be able to discern what's going on in the world around us. And if we knew that, if we would trust His Word, we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have. The doctrine of God's Word is repeated, it's supported, it's revisited, it's upheld from beginning to end. Now with all that in mind, listen to God's response to the dream weavers. (laughs) The false prophets. Again, verse 28. And I'm reading this over and over to get this in. It's a great verse just to have in your heart. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word... Speak my word in truth. And then he says, What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord. The dreams have nothing there. The dreams are empty. They're nothing more than straw. They're empty calories like macaroni and cheese. That's what the dreams of the false prophets are. 
Kraft macaroni and cheese. There's nothing to it. Oh, but it tastes great. Yeah, it fills you up and then you're empty again. It's just nothing there. And to contrast, the dreams of the prophets and the false dreams and all the delusions out there and the wishful thinking, God uses three word pictures for His Word. Three of them right here. The Word is like grain. And then He says in verse 29, Is not my Word like fire? And then declares the Lord, And like a hammer which shatters rock. Take those three. Think about them. The Word is like grain. How so? It feeds the hungry. It feeds the starving. God's Word is substantive and filling and nutritious beyond all else. You go here and you will be filled. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, or macaroni and cheese, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he quotes the word of God. He speaks the word of God, quoting the word of God, which he inspired to be spoken in the first place, and now he's speaking. And it just blows my mind. It's amazing. Again, the consistency of God's Word. Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.4, same exact word. You shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And God's Word is like grain, sifted from the chaff and from the straw. The Word feeds the starving. It feeds the hungry. In verse 29, he says the Word's like fire. I like this one. The Word is like fire. How so? It consumes the straw. It just burns it away. Now we talked about this back in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah said, If I say I will, not, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. And we talked about it at that time. The Word of God is like a fire in my bones. If I know His Word and have taken it in, I have to let it out. Otherwise, I have heartburn. Otherwise, it just it, it creates a passion in a person. But that's not the fire that he's describing here in verse 29. He's not describing a fire of passion. He's not talking about the heart stirred up. In verse 29, he says, Is not my word like fire? He's talking about what the word will do. Think about this. What the word will do. This is more akin to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 5.14. Behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will, consume them. The people of Judah would not be consumed with a passion for God's word before they were carried into Babylonian captivity. They would be consumed by judgment. This Word is a fire. The Word of God overtakes, it penetrates, and it even incinerates all of the bogus declarations of man. It completely wipes out the baseless confirmations of the false prophets, of the critics, of the dissenters of alike, and the Word of God will consume even the most rebellious people. It will consume like fire. Kyle and Delich in their commentary say, Jeremiah does not merely give his hearers a characteristic by which they may distinguish genuine prophecy. He seeks besides to make them know that the word of the Lord which he proclaims will make an end of the lying prophet's work. I really like that. I read that and went, yes! (laughs) As a believer of Jesus, as one who has trusted his life, 
to this book, to God's Word. I love that. This Word will make an end to all the lies. This Word will incinerate all the falsities, all the deceptions. Revelation 19.15, John sees Jesus coming. And it's a powerful vision. And in verse 15 of Revelation 19, John says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Why? Well, you know what the sword is, right? It's the Word of God. It is representative of the Word. But it comes in judgment, the sword of the Word. Why? Revelation 19.15 continues, So that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. In other words, when it's all said and done, every last word of man falls silent. And only the word of Jesus Christ remains. He has the final word. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His word stands. His word is like fire. It will burn away all the false talk. It's interesting, he doesn't qualify this, and I'll just point this out quickly. I could have done probably a whole section on this. But he doesn't limit the word here to destruction. He just says, is not my word like fire? And in the context, we recognize he's talking about judgment and the power of the word to judge. But we also know this, the word of God is like fire in my life. It has a purifying effect. It burns the junk out of me. It burns the chaff out of my life. It continues, and I'm talking on a weekly, on a daily basis, in Rick's life, it burns away all of the deceptions that otherwise I would follow after. And they come up all the time. An idea, a political view, a concept, a work of some kind, and all the stuff is always coming up. And it amazes me how always the Word of God has a tendency to go... And it burns away. And if it's good, and if it's of God, when the Word like fire burns it, guess what happens? It gets purified. Oh, that's something that's useful for the kingdom. Oh, that's something that is valuable here. Paul, speaking to believers, said, 1 Corinthians 3.13, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Listen, that's not a statement of judgment day. That is a statement of the judgment of followers of Jesus. This is a statement of the judgment of saved people. Listen again to what he says. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. We're talking about someone who believes in Jesus. But what Paul is focused on here is the fire that burns and tests the quality of our work as followers in Jesus Christ. That there are things that we are all engaged in, you know what? They're going to burn up. They're not going to last. They are worthless, speaking eternally. There are things we're all engaged in that will be purified and remain and they are worthy of reward. And those are the good things. Brothers and sisters, 
please hear this, anything non-eternal goes. Anything non-eternal will be burned up. Which, yes, Bill, it does mean your gun collection. I'm sorry to tell you. (laughs) But it also means my tailored guitar. Anything non-eternal is not going to last. Sean and I were cleaning out the garage yesterday, again, trying to get both cars in there. We succeeded. But we were all done at the end of the day. We were exhausted. We sat down, and I looked at Sean, and I said, you know what I am so excited of about the rapture? I don't have to pack anything. It all stays here. It's all, I don't need, I won't need it. When God calls us home, we don't have to think about, okay, am I going to need that? I'm going to make sure I take my Bible. Really? You're going to be with the Word. There's nothing will take it. All burns. It's it's all going to get left. So many of the things that we Christians just wholeheartedly believe in are going to burn. We've got to weigh our lives that way. And the best, best thing I think we can do right now is start tossing the worthless stuff into the fire today. Spiritually speaking, don't start burning your homes. <laughs> well, the pastor said, you know, I'm lighting my home up. No. The worthless things. Focus on the eternal things. Like what? Look around. People. People are eternal. And I'm not talking about, well, then we need to make our lives better for each other. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Where are we in terms of eternity? Who are the people around you, eternal beings, who right now do not know Jesus? Right now, they will burn. They matter. They matter to God. They should matter to us as well. Build in them. Faith, hope, and love, these things are eternal. Build on them. The Word is eternal. Build on it. The Word is like grain. It feeds the starving. The Word is like straw. It consumes, or it's like fire. It consumes the straw. And finally, and I love the last one, the Word is like a hammer. It shatters stone. The Hebrew word for hammer there is patis, and it is a unique word. It means sledgehammer. We're talking about the kind of hammer that you would use to shatter stone. This is a big hammer. The word is like that. The word there for stone is selah, which is not just a rock, it's a stone fortress. It's like a fortress in the wilderness. It's a stronghold. The word is like a sledgehammer to the strongholds of the world. And this is exciting to me because this comes down to how we're walking, how we're living our Christian lives. According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 through 18, he gives several defensive tools of the follower of Jesus. Defensive tools for spiritual warfare. And then at the end of the list, he gives two offensive weapons, and there are only two. We have all kinds of defensive tools. We have helmets, we have, you know, breastplates, we have shoes, special shoes. We've got all of this. We only have two offensive weapons, prayer and the Word of God. That's how we fight back. That's how we stand in this world, prayer and the Word. But listen, with that in mind, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Rock strongholds, if you will. 
He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the Word of God in prayer shatters strongholds. They shatter those things that build up against the church or against faith or against... I, I I shared on Wednesday night that Canada, the Canadian Supreme Court, just just basically said this last week that biblical words against homosexuality are hate speech. In other words, that a pastor who reads or quotes or prints out Romans chapter 1 is committing a hate crime. This is in our neighboring country right now. It's a stronghold. You know what breaks down the strongholds? The sledgehammer of the word breaks the strongholds of man. We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And let me tell you something about intercession. Just as a side note here, the best tool of intercession that you have is praying the Word. Because you use both offensive weapons together. The Word and prayer. Prayer and the Word. If you in your own prayer life wonder, what do I pray about? Start praying the Word. You can do that. You know, you can open up a psalm and just pray it. You can open up sections of Scripture and just pray through them. Pray them back to the Lord. And as you do that, and the more the Word gets into our hearts and into our minds, the more it fills how we pray. And the more powerful our prayer becomes because now we're fighting with two weapons as opposed to just one. So pray The Word, the Word that is like grain feeding the starving, like fire consuming the straw, and like a hammer that shatters stone. That's the Word of God. Have we forgotten, or perhaps have we underestimated, what it is that we're really engaged in here? As followers of Jesus Christ, Do we know what we're really involved with? This is not just another Sunday. This is not just another teaching from one week to the next. This is no mere dream. We are caught up in the reality of eternity. We have to recognize this. This is not just a wish our heart makes. I'm not one of those who sits around going, boy, I hope this is true. I hope that I'm going to get called up soon. I hope that Jesus is real. I hope that I don't someday discover a flaw in the Scripture. He says, Let him who has my word speak my word. Note this, in truth. In truth. The Hebrew word truth there is amet. It means faithfulness. It means reliability. Firmness. Let him who speaks my word speak it true. Speak it with reliability. Speak it confidently. Trustingly. Speak my word faithfully. Trust that the word that you speak from my pages is my word. Have confidence in that. Stand strong on that. Be fearless with my word. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. When was the last time you, as a follower of Jesus, lost heart? 
You were discouraged. You were bummed out by the things you see going on in your family, in the news, in the world. We don't lose heart, Paul says. We've renounced hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And we can have that confidence because, well, the Word wasn't just written on the page. The Word was written in human flesh. The Word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that Jesus is the grain. The Word is grain. Like grain, but Jesus is the grain who feeds the starving. Jesus the Word. John 6.35, He said, I am the bread of life. I'm so thankful He didn't say, I am Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. (laughs) I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. That's a promise. Come to Jesus and you're not going to go away hungry. Come to Jesus and He will feed you and fill you. And Jesus says, He who believes in Me will never thirst. Jesus is the grain who feeds the starving. Jesus is the fire who burns away the straw. All the wasted, useless, futile things of our lives, He just burns away. Here's how it works. It's very simple. Anything you engage in, anything you're involved in, ask yourself, is this a Jesus thing? Does this promote Jesus? Does this glorify Jesus? Does this uplift Jesus? If it does, it's probably a good thing. If it doesn't, it's chaff. Let it go. All the wasted stuff, He burns it away. And ultimately, when John sees Him in that revelation, in Revelation 19, you know what he sees? Eyes of fire. Eyes of fire that burn with judgment. Jesus is the grain. Jesus is the fire. Jesus is the hammer. (laughs) This is a new thought to me. Jesus is the hammer who shatters a stony heart. He's the hammer. But listen, the way Jesus gets in, the way that He shatters the heart of stone is, is unexpected. In fact, He did it in a way that nobody could possibly have dreamed up. Psalm 118.22 tells us the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, if Jesus is the Word and the Word is the hammer that shatters the stone, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone, what does that mean? He's the hammer who shatters the stone. He's the stone who was hammered. Jesus, the chief cornerstone, was hammered to the cross, the nails driven through His hands and feet. The cross shatters our hopeless dreams. It smashes our wishful thinking and it replaces them with the truth of God's love for us. That's why we keep coming back to the cross. 